KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molyneux. This is the Henry George Program, show all about land, policy, and politics. We're here in 2024 and starting off with an episode about housing elements. We're taking a deep dive into the state housing planning apparatus. And who better than Kevin Burke, housing elements watchdog, housing elements whisperer of East Bay for everyone to take us on this journey. We'll be talking about how this process has been going from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, getting to issues such as fair housing provisions. We'll talk about whatever it wants to hear, builder's remedy, and even talk a bit about land value. Without further ado, yeah, let's uh, just do it. So, well, Kevin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to be here. Yeah, so this is not the first time we've talked about housing elements. This is, we've talked about housing elements has been incubated, a lot of the arena back process, you know, some of the, you know, watchdogging uh, down in Southern California. But, you know, I, it, one, it's a big issue. I think it's worth going back to this well again and again, because it's an interesting example of state planning. What ca- What is California trying to do to make housing happen? Uh, and two, there's been a lot of interesting, you know, updates, uh, both as far as kind of just what's happening in, uh, in Northern California. And, uh, I, th- yeah, Builder's Remedy wasn't even a thing, uh, you know, you know, a year and change ago. So, yeah. So, uh, well, I guess, uh, just introduce yourself and talk a little bit what got you, uh, I guess maybe specifically into the world of, uh, housing elements. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, professionally, I work as a software engineer and I guess I, I got interested in sort of housing both through, it just seems like a lot of the issues in this area kind of boil down to the housing problems, you know, both personally, like my friends and family can't afford to, to live in the Bay area and kind of from a public policy perspective, it just makes every problem so much harder if you can't hire middle income workers because they can't afford to live here. So yeah, uh, and then going to to meetings in San Francisco and realizing the crazy things that people were saying at um, public hearings. But yeah, how I got interested in housing elements specifically is I thought they were a really useful um, lever for shaping public policy and sort of influencing public policy um, because the the penalties for for not having a, a compliant housing element are pretty severe. Um, so cities are paying a lot of attention to it, and the state's paying a lot of attention to it. Um, you know, and and there aren't a lot of opportunities to to personally be able to add you know hundreds to thousands of of housing units, um, or you know not 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 that you're directly building them, but um, changing zoning in such a way to make those units possible to build. You know, if you were going to do that directly financially, you'd need you know tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so so that's a that's a pretty neat way I think to have a, a lot of impact. Uh, on, on housing in, in California is how I saw the opportunity. Yeah. So, so what's, what's the 30 second for people who may not be familiar, you know, what's your elevator pitch for, you know, uh, housing elements 101? Yeah. So every eight years, the state requires every jurisdiction in the state to show that it has basically the capacity to add a set number of new homes. And so this number changes for each city and county. But basically, the the city needs to show that it has it has the capacity and that it has sites where where people are going to build those. Um, and so the problem is that cities are not really uh, interested or incentivized to try very hard at this. Uh, and so that's where kind of if you're an advocate, um, if you can point out the flaws in cities' plans, you can force them to submit better plans um, and actually have a more realistic chance of getting the housing built in the numbers that they they say they tell the state that are actually going to get built. 
And to clarify, this isn't new. They, uh, I mean, this is, it was rolled out like 1980 or so. I'd actually, I'd be curious, you know, what, what was the, with the first cycle? Like, yeah. what was the, what was the motivation? Cause it's weird that they made these happen. You must have a housing element, but then they just kind of, you know, it was honor system. It's like, oh, dude, just have fun out there because yeah. like they, like they didn't matter at all for, you know, better part of 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's kind of this weird. So this is the sixth. We're going through the sixth cycle, which depending on where you are is like starting in 2022, 23 and ending in 2030, 2031. But yeah, th- there's kind of this weird like kabuki theater where the state doesn't want to like directly say that it's trying to like build housing or like add housing. And so instead they they use this kind of indirect mechanism of telling cities, okay, you're responsible for planning this many new homes. You're responsible for planning this many new homes. And then the cities kind of have more control showing at where the, the homes are going to go inside of the city. Um, and in the generally this hasn't really led to, to good results in the past for a few reasons. Um, one is, you know, the cities don't want to build housing at the rates that the state wants them to build at. Uh, so, you know, they, they've in the past submitted a bunch of infeasible sites. There's a really good LA times article by Liam Dillon focused on foster city that kind of covers this. Like, but I feel like that's a, that's a more, that's a more recent thing kind of yeah. like in the past, they wouldn't even like, I guess, did, did they always have site inventories or has that like been adapted? Because I feel in the past, like it That's was kind question. of, they can say whatever and they would just like, first, like in the past, the overall numbers were far less. And then two, they just wouldn't do it. They just yeah. would say, oh, we, we, we did 5%. Oh, we tried really hard. Uh, right. Well, we'll do better next time, uh, which is, yeah, I mean, there's nothing there. At least now, I mean, reading all these housing elements in this current cycle where, one, they they have higher, you know, requirements and their actual consequences, you know, through several different policy levers, which we can get into. Like, it, I'm reminded of nothing so much as just, like, insulin teenagers doing homework or something. Like, it's right. just – it's so many people trying to fudge their numbers, trying to get away with stuff. And it's just this like weird back and forth, back and forth. But yeah, I mean, as you talk about fake site, you know, site inventories is something we see. We talked about this down in Southern California, but uh, yeah, I think you just 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 tell people again, like what what does it mean when someone kind of fakes that kind of stuff? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you're kind of right. If you go back and look at like the first housing elements, it'll be like ten pages or something like that. Yeah. And then now you go and look at a housing element, there's like 600 pages of, of evidence. And I think part of that is, you know, the state's sort of demanding more evidence. Uh, and part of it is, you know, uh, the laws have kind of changed about, you know, what sort of things you need to submit as part of your housing element. The consequences of submitting a fake site inventory. So let's say I'm like an average size uh, city. You could say I'm like Danville, for example, and I have uh, That's 40, a town. That's a town. A town Danville's a town. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and I have 40,000 residents and I've been asked to add 2000 new homes by 2031. And so I might allocate those to a bunch of different sites in my town and say, you know, this site is going to build 200 apartments and this site is going to build 50 apartments and this site is going to build 10 apartments or whatever. And we're going to add this many ADUs and all of those together kind of add to 2000 plus, plus you're supposed to add a little bit of buffer because, you know, accidents happen, but, um, and the buffer is entirely insufficient, but but that's that's another story. Um, so the so the issue is if you submit fake sites, basically like you're getting away with a lower sites inventory, you know, than than otherwise 
you would be submitting, right? If 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 half of that inventory is on fake sites, then realistically you're looking at adding about a thousand homes instead of two thousand. Um, so the game for advocates is is to try to disqualify as many sites as possible um, in order to sort of try to concentrate higher levels of development on the feasible sites. And that can take a, like increasing, you know, base densities uh, or or sort of triggering rezonings uh, on feasible sites. Um, so, for, for example, in Lafayette, they were trying to count their BART parking lot uh, in their sites inventory. And our argument was, you know, essentially around the site is not on BART's plan uh, for, for sort of where they're building housing in the next decade. And also it has a contract with a, a solar panel developer. There's solar panels on top of the site where they'd have to pay $3 million or something to get out of that contract. Hmm. Um, and so we were successful at basically disqualifying that site. And I mean, they were counting on like 800 units on that site. So as a result of that, they had to reallocate those units to other other sites in Lafayette um, and increase the the base densities there. Yeah, it'd be nice if Bar could move quicker and redevelop all their parking lots. But as we see in like North Berkeley, it's a, it's a, it's unfortunately a slow process. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, mostly, I mean, it, it seems like it's mostly a probabilities game. Like in the past, I think you basically, I mean, for at least f- cycles in the past, like as long as you get your numbers up, they rubber stamp it. But now it's like you have to multiply every one by what's the probability. And if it's like something is a 95%, yeah, that's basically a one for one. But you could have everything from like, oh, yeah, flip a coin, you know, and then you have to have twice as many. But if you find like really, really dubious ones that just won't happen, yeah, that should be discounted essentially to zero percent or close yeah. to it. I noticed here, like you were talking with unincorporated Contra Costa County, and you, like your letter was recommending because they had a rec- they had a, a, a they need about eight thousand uh, yeah. units, and you were recommending forty thousand or so, basically a yeah. five time multiplier. I mean, is that like that's a that's a basically <laughs> giving a twenty percent probability? Is that like is that do you think a realistic or is this a is this had to do with these specific context well, of it, it depends realistic and what or sense. you just make a maximalist demand just because yeah, it's better if, to ask more if you go back and look at like for example in the last housing elements and people have actually done these and there are various kind of tools online that you can look at that sort of show this but i mean it's about that percentage right which is about 20 percent, where you say you know in the fifth cycle if you said a site was going to turn into housing maybe about 20 percent of the time it did so big cities, uh, small cities, suburbs, that's core, just like, it's 20% I mean, that's, pretty good across the board? Yeah. I mean, the other thing that you see a lot of times is that sites that aren't on the inventory become housing because this is yeah. kind of like a, an, an imperfect exercise. Sure. Um, and so HCD, so their guidelines are basically like assume an 85% conversion ratio or like 15% buffer. Um, and that's just like way too high when you look at how many sites people are allocating in the last cycle. Um, and you look at some of the specific sites. We had a conversation with someone at HCD where basically we were saying, you know, a lot of these sites that cities are submitting is are just complete junk, you know. And and what this person said was, well, look at the fries in Palo Alto, which uh, you know they included, and even though it was like a healthy business, fries, and then oh, they went bankrupt, and now it's turning into housing. You know, and this was their argument for saying basically like, well, we should accept cities when they submit any kind of junk in their sites inventory. But um, a more a more realistic approach would be to say, okay, let's assign a probability that fries goes bankrupt to say three to five percent or something like that, and then you multiply the number of units you could get on that site by three or five percent, and then you count that towards your inventory. And so, if you did that, you could include a larger number of sites 
um, at a much lower probability. Um, but in reality, what a lot of cities are doing is just throwing in bad sites and saying that there's an 85% chance that they're going to become housing. Um, if they were trying to actually like hit the hit the numbers, um, and then the other the other issue is kind of the lower income numbers, you know, where um, if you look at like the targets, you know, they assume about 45% of every new home is going to become a, a lo- offered to lower income u- residents, a, a much more realistic number is around 10 to 15% when you look at new housing. So the way to sort of hit your lower income target system massively overshoot the market rate, you get 10 to 15% of those at lower income and you can actually hit your lower income targets. Yeah, I think I mean um, I think getting the getting the subsidized or you know directly or indirectly subsidized tranches I, that's a I mean I think that's a much 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 more difficult thing to do and I think we'll get into that kind of I'll, I'll earmark that yeah but yeah as you're talking about the eight, like the fifteen percent buffer is like it's it's kind of treated as like oh yeah that's just good practice but it seems like that's not empirically backed up and then on top of it people are not even hitting that you know a lot of places yeah. are squeezing in minus one percent and i think i think i read that uh, danville just like missed their target they're under it which is yes. are they, are they go are they going for partial credit like what are they doing there so um yeah so i mean the buffer is just a guideline all you have to do under the statute is is just identify sites for you know a hundred percent of your arena but if you uh, only not hit if you only hit 95 percent of it like do they not uh, just flunk you out of the gates yeah, they should. And I, they did in, in Danville's case. Um, but yeah, so Danville, basically the issue there was they circulated a draft where like the lower income targets just didn't add up to what their lower income arena was. And Rhythm so the way hard. that they the way that they dealt with this is they assumed that they changed the assumptions about every single project to just increase the number of lower income <laughs> units on each site. Uh, yeah. So like uh, a site that had 100 units and previously they, they said, you know, uh, 25% of these are going to be lower income. Uh, now, all of a sudden, they're saying 33% of these are going to be lower income in their newer draft. I mean, it's all just completely made up. Like, Well, if you, you cook know, your books, shouldn't the numbers add up to be correct in the end? It's weird to cook your books and it's not adding up. Yes, but it's a way to cook your books that like HCD accepts. <laughs> okay. Well, I, just, uh, I don't understand why they couldn't actually hit yeah. their total. Like, so, it seems like if you're uh, just lying, it shouldn't be hard to. Yeah, I mean, so anyone, anyone site in theory, you know, a lower income housing developer could buy it and and develop low income housing. Um, the reality is that the funds for those sorts of projects are, are pretty limited, uh, you know, and we're still probably, I don't know if I had to guess around 90% of homes on the market are being produced at the market rate. And so then with market rate, you get basically like 80 to 90% of the units in a project are going to be market rate. And then you get some number of units offered at inclusionary, this is what's called like inclusionary zoning. Um, so you get like 10 to 20% of the units at, at sort of below market rate or, or lower income housing. Yeah. Kind of, this is a you know, pet peeve, which is, yeah. or at least it's a, it's a trend, which is a lot of people whining about, I mean, I'm thinking specifically about people in San Francisco. They whine about hitting their new market rate targets, saying, "Well, last cycle we exceeded our market rate targets. We did badly on subsidized." Yeah. And there's like two different responses to this, which is just the fact that, like, well, now you now you have to do more. They had thirty thousand last time. It's eighty thousand this time. You know, so it's over two times as many. So, like, okay, you hopped over the hurdle last time. Let's see if you can do this taller one. And then two is they're saying, okay, it's like. The problem is a lack of subsidized. And as you're saying, one strategy 
And really, the main strategy is you get subsidized units by having a percentage of new build through IZ of market rate. So it's like, okay, well, if that's your strategy, you need to build a lot of market rate. Yeah. And I guess, or you need to find novel and different ways to build only subsidized, which means you need to find all this revenue. And the people who whine about the market rate are never serious about this. At least I never hear people talk about, here is my plan to build only subsidized. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's, it's just so, a I mean, weird tick. Did, yeah. So there were people in San Francisco who are throwing around numbers like the state should give us $40 billion or $50 billion. Oh, yeah. If the state just like gives that. it to you, that's great. But yeah. Like, I mean, that's like, that would be just for San Francisco alone. That would be like a third of the state's budget or like a quarter of the state's budget for all yeah. purposes, right? Not even like housing. <laughs> the amount of money that's spent yeah. on housing. That's like all of the money that goes to every education system and everything. So like, yeah, if you want to give a quarter of the state budget to San Francisco to, to build affordable housing, yes, you can you can build all of that. So here, here's your, like, I guess you have two choices. You can either build your subsidized units by also building market rate at huge quantities, or you can bankrupt the schools. <laughs> These people, yeah, would, yeah, they, exactly, they hate yeah. market rates so yeah. much, they'd rather bankrupt the schools. That's, I don't yeah, know. yeah. I mean, it's just an artifact of the, the, the sort of the arena targets are just an artifact of like people basically looking at arena numbers and then saying, oh, well, we should propose higher, like lower income because it's more important which is like that that's reasonable that makes sense but it also leads to this sort of distortion where like the percentages given to each city don't match up with the percentages that actually get proposed in in project developments and so you end up with this sort of um everyone overshoots their market rate or gets closer to their market rate goal than they do their their lower income goal just as just as the nature of the the way that that works out and I could see, like, if, if a place is a, is a is a poor, you know, disadvantaged city that is kind of helpless, it's like, oh, we're we're more of a ward of the state. Please, you need to give us funds. But like, San Francisco is a rich city. Oh yeah, like yeah, yeah, it, like yeah, the yeah. Fa- like you know, like in the thing too. I hear this the most of like, you know, San Francisco gets my hackles up. But Beverly Hills claims this, and I say again and again, you're rich. You can if you really care about subsidized units so much, you can raise the revenue and build it. But you yeah. don't. Like yeah. I don't no like it's yeah. just like this weird you know simultaneous helplessness but like just unserious i mean i don't know i mean it's i mean i think the cynical read is just this is just a bunch of uh you know creating a distraction uh to say why you can't just build new housing and i mean i think that's the correct read but i don't know yeah i mean yeah so one of the sort of most promising leg- legislative fixes to come out of sort of working on this has just been I, I feel like the most effective would just be to triple or quadruple the market rate arena. Um, and then I think you just have fewer places to hide if you're you're a city because you need to rezone, you know, a lot more parcels. And then also there wouldn't be so much nitpicking over individual sites because individual sites wouldn't matter as much. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that would also sort of insulate you from complaints about, oh, we overshot our market rate and we undershot our, our lower income. Um, I don't know how politically feasible that would be, but that would certainly solve a lot of the kind of problems that we're seeing with um, with sites, sites inventories and um, the, the sort of arena process. Yeah. And I, I mean, I personally, I'm not the hugest fan of IZ just as far as like, I, it, it's like a weird break you're putting on the new housing. I'd rather find different ways to, I think, decouple it. I mean, I do like the you know, per building integration to some degree. I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, like decoupling it instead 
and just having a big fund full of here's your subsidized funds instead of per I don't, I don't know like yeah. it's like it, that's another question too like how far is your are your subsidized you know funds going we have all these different you know countywide measures but the money doesn't go that far due to different yeah. reasons and yeah. i guess it's good to have I mean, it's good to have the numbers because it's like a target for number of units, which is the important part. But like, if you're just failing at doing it, you know, I, unlike the market rate, there aren't the same penalties. But I don't yeah. know. It's 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 tough. I mean, I it's a historically big problem. How do you build subsidized units in big quantities? And it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, the other issue that that people don't really talk about is that it sort of shifts enforcement to all of these different apartment owners. You know, if I have, for example, a ten unit subdivision, which I live in Walnut Creek, and there are, there are a fair number of these, so now you're doing one unit at below market rates, and so now you need to be responsible for uh, income verification and um, policing and making sure that this person isn't like renting out the unit. Uh, and I mean, you've seen even in San Francisco, which in theory has the resources to do something like this. <laughs> Uh, a lot of their subsidized units are just vacant um, because of various sort of difficulties with administering the program. Um, and look, look, how do you get on? Like, do you have a billion different queues? A lot of times yeah. you do. It's like if you're looking for affordable housing, it's like first you need to find out, like, how does this work? And then like, what are the million pieces of paperwork I need to do to apply for a million queues and then wait for seven years at least? I, I don't know. It's like I don't think you can look at the end like this is good for people. And I'd say, like, the people who actually are, like, look at our politician class. How many people are living in deed-restricted subsidized units? Essentially zero. And I think it's a sign that, like, we consider it, oh, it's housing for others, you know? I think we had more people who actually deal with these headaches. We we probably would remedy some of these headaches. But it's kind of a a tangent here. Uh, I mean, mean, so here's the big thing. I mean, I, I... I've I, housing elements are incredibly exciting in in I think some of the larger scale or at least it's how we're doing business right now, and it's nice to see all the cities whine. But I think you know you're dealing with Alameda County, Contra Costa County over in the East Bay, and also East Bay for everyone is dealing with San Francisco too because why not? Uh, but like there's so many cities. There's I mean yeah. I think between the, between the two of those you're talking about uh, about 35 cities. Uh, cities and, and towns uh, and I don't know just like it feels like I've been keeping track myself in like Palo Alto I've spoken a few times mostly to taunt them because I feel like it's that's I think a better process than seeing compliance is seeing them screw up yeah uh, but like what how do you deal with all these different it's just there's too much going on too many deadlines I'll just be honest I feel overwhelmed and confused like do you just have a does it does it work? Does your workflow just just actually mesh with this pretty well, or is this um, how, how, do you, how do you deal with the chaos? Yeah, it's a good question. So we've tended to focus on jurisdictions where sort of regulation is a bigger barrier to um, getting housing approved, uh, and so this tends to be the more exclusive jurisdictions. Um, so places, places that you like, are not looking at would be, for example. Well, like lower income, I mean, like Antioch, for example, like we did not really look that hard at Antioch. Okay. Uh, You did have Oakland. I mean, but I think you can't avoid Oakland. Oakland. In particular, we were looking at like Rockridge. We're looking at kind of missing middle um, and kind of because the the, the issue in Oakland, I mean, you'll see this again and again and kind of housing elements is they were concentrating so much of the new development in sort of the lower income 
East Oakland uh, areas and yeah. less in the hills, you know, not not that they should be putting everything in the hills, but like every neighborhood should have its part. And, you know, more around their downtown bar stations and less around Rockridge. Uh, and, you know, Rockridge was downzoned in, in 1970 in response to like a, an affordable housing development that went in there. Uh, and so a lot of our sort of efforts went around sort of explaining the historical context to HED and, and trying to get those reversed. Uh, I mean, we were massively successful uh, doing that. Um, so, you know, and we we ended up getting a, a really strong missing middle program passed, which is now implemented, uh, and also rezonings uh, in Rockridge, which got passed there. Um, and then in Contra Costa County, it's, it's a lot of the housing, a lot of the cities on the 680-24 corridor, so like Orinda, Lafayette, um, Walnut Creek, uh, and then unincorporated Contra Costa County, which is Alamo, uh, and, you know, pockets throughout and, um, and, uh, Danville have kind of been the, the cities that I've been focusing on in particular. Um, and in terms of workflows, it's really hard, you know, um, basically I just kind of just track this by a lot by email. So you try to sign up for everyone's email distribution list. Uh, and then they're basically required to send out, you know, emails when they have a new draft for review or when, you know, the city council is reviewing something. Um, and so then you get those and and you kind of circulate and we we collaborate a lot in Slack with other people on our team to say, you know, here's what we're sending. Here's our notes on on this draft that come in. Um, the other thing is that you can skip a lot of kind of the, the documents. Um, so it's 600 pages, but you don't necessarily need to read 600 pages of everything. Um, the really big things to focus on are like the site's inventory, uh, the constraints section. So the constraints section is like, here are all the different ways that like we make it hard to build housing. So like we impose parking minimums and then, you know, you have to build parking in addition to the housing, or we set a height limit of 30 feet, or we set zoning restraints that will, you know, permit a maximum of 10 units per acre. Right. Or uh, we have minimum lot size rules. So they're supposed to like write all these down. So that's another thing you can ding cities on is like, you're not analyzing these constraints properly. Or like, here's a constraint that like you didn't, you didn't analyze. Uh, and then the other one is programs, which is like your programs are supposed to uh, fix all the things in your constraints section, like make it possible to achieve the, the housing. Um, so we've able we've been able to get some pretty good programs in in a lot of different cities uh, for things that they're supposed to do to, to to facilitate sort of housing development. Yeah, I guess I guess you have kind of like the distribution of how you're trying to set up housing within your you know district, and then there is like the overall hurdles that apply to any single parcel. And yeah. I, I mean, I think those are both interesting. I, I think like the overall hurdles, it's nice to fix it there. I mean, I think it's nice if we fix that at the state level, because like a lot of these bad policies uh, should just be stripped away at every single juncture. But I mean, I, again, I mean, I, I don't follow the East Bay stuff, you know, closely. And I'm only, you know, kind of at a very top level familiar with a lot of these jurisdictions. But I guess my main experience is Palo Alto. And I can see these sins come again and yeah. again. For example, I mean, I think this is probably a running trend in most places. You talk about where are you going to put your new housing? And to me, like if I were the god of, you know, doing this in Palo Alto, I would say around the around the two Caltrain stations. Yeah. They, it, it should look like Hong Kong. It should go very, very, very tall. And they've done something in their downtown on University, but on their other one, there is a place like Old Palo Alto. Um, I used to live in the ADU there. And it's, you know, old bungalows, small little things. They're all, they're all you know, really expensive now, obviously. And they didn't 
touch this at all. Like, yeah. this is a walk from a Caltrain station, and they say, oh, we're looking for new sites. This doesn't get touched. Instead, they put sites up by the highway on, like, farm industrial yeah. sites. They're looking to, like, tear down retail centers. They're looking in, like... I, I feel like it to me, it's not like I feel like, oh, you know, we need to preserve all retail centers as it is in, you know, places uh, like they're looking like, oh, we're going to uh, tear down the McDonald's on Page Mill. You know, it's like, yeah, it seems to be like that people eat there. Like, I would rather tear down a bunch of, you know, and, and, and make dense a bunch more residential areas. But places in my experience, they don't touch the residential areas. Yeah. And. I, is I, is that is that is that a, is that a pattern that you see in most of these places, oh, yeah. or are places, yeah. t- or any places actually touch the residential centers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's absolutely a pattern, um, and it's it's really unfortunate. I mean, it's just very kind of silly. Is that when you see kind of these big bills come out, like Senate Bill Fifty, which would have rezoned everything around transit, kind of by right. Yeah. Uh, and the pushback from all these cities is local control. We know best where housing should go. Um, trust us, we're going to do it. And then they, they put up these plans where all of the housing is kind of concentrated around uh, big car thoroughfares and away from kind of transit in ways that are going to increase we're not the even, amount of Not even traffic. thoroughfares. Like the way like Palo Alto is tucking them in like industrial areas that yeah. like yeah, are yeah, yeah. so, and people have done this in the past. Like Mountain View has done better in the past, but I've I've done like, uh, you know, firing and knocking doors in townhouses built in old industrial centers. And you realize it because like, y- like you have to walk, you know, two miles <laughs> to get to like transit anywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, the explicit guidance that Danville Town Council gave staff at the start of this process was keep everything away from single family zones. Um, and that was kind of their overarching consideration and where to kind of identify new sites. Um, but yeah, you see this just again and again, like in Contra Costa County, basically in Contra Costa County, it's a collection of unincorporated areas. So uh, North Richmond is an industrial zone, Crockett, Rodeo, Bay Point. Um, all of these are sort of lower income. All of these have higher populations of minorities, have worse schools, uh, have worse pollution. Um, and then you have kind of higher income, uh, higher pop, higher white populations, better schools, less pollution, places like Alamo and Saranap and Kensington, uh, and even Discovery Bay. And basically, the entire like a disproportionate amount of the sites inventory is going into the lower income areas with with more minorities. It's like every map they put in in Contra Costa County looks like the same map. It's 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 all just, you know, and the state has these guidelines, which which thank goodness they're finally kind of pushing back on this and saying, you know, uh, these these new laws that passed around fair housing. And they say, basically, you know, it's not fair to 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 do this. Right. We're not we're not giving people an equal shot at, at having opportunity. Right. If you talk about the people who are going to be moving into these new apartments, a lot of them are going to be putting putting their kids in worse school districts. I mean, personally, I think it's a lot easier to uh, keep a good school good, you know, and have it accommodate sort of more students or in a lot of cases prevent uh, enrollment declines, which is one thing that you see a lot in, in the San Ramon Valley uh, than it is to take take a bad school and sort of transform it into a good school. Uh, yeah. and, so, and so I think that's just like really unfair. Um, that they're doing that, you know, and so finally, this cycle, the state has kind of tools, some tools to push back on things like this. And fortunately, it is. But yeah, I mean, this this pattern of kind of disproportionate, um, let's put stuff in industrial sites, let's put stuff in, in more heavily polluted areas uh, is unfortunately pretty wide, widespread. 
Yeah, I guess it seems to me like maybe it's harder to quantify because there is, as you say, the fair housing, the AFFH requirement is part of this process. And I maybe I was a bit naive, but I thought, oh, like Palo Alto doing it this way, this alone will cause them to say this is a fair housing violation. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think they're it, it seems like they're not really uh, saying that not touching single family housing in areas that should be changed is enough of a fair housing violation itself or how does that work is it so yeah so i mean the the issue with the fair housing the way that the fair housing guidelines came about is the obama administration put out these fair housing guidelines at the federal level um that didn't end up getting implemented uh and so someone took those and said well we can just implement these in california so then they basically adopted those for california passed it signed into law and there's a lot of good stuff in there. Like you're supposed to analyze sort of like patterns of patterns of uh, access, historical segregation, things have led to segregation. You know, like in Lafayette, for example, um, the town was 99% white in 1960 and 13,000 people moved to Lafayette between 1960 and 1970. And it was 99% white in 1970. So, you know, they've never had a similar number of people move. So, I mean, you're looking at like huge numbers of white residents at a time when um, segregation was uh, through a number of formal and informal methods, you know, enforced in Lafayette, you know, it'd be harder to get a loan if you were a black person in Lafayette. Uh, your realtor probably wouldn't even show you houses, not to mention um, a lot of these homes and, and subdivisions might have had something in the CCNRs that says you can't sell this house to a black person. Um, you know, and, and, and in 1968, they voted to incorporate in 1974, they passed a general plan that that reduced the density on on a ton of different sites in Lafayette, and so this is kind of the context. And today it's like an eighty percent white suburb. Um, you know, a ton of white people moved in, and then they basically voted to downzone the town. And since then, it's pretty much stayed really white. You know, they've never had a chance. There's never really been an equal opportunity for for black people to move in um, since since we've sort of reduced the the de facto segregation levels and and sort of lending and um um you know, uh, showing people apartments and, and, and home sales, um, you know, and so, so this is the thing that they're, they're, they're trying to reverse. Um, this is the thing that cities are supposed to analyze. The problem is, is that, um, the, the guidelines, you know, they're just kind of like, they're kind of like, you need to, you need to explain what you're going to do to remedy this, but like, they're not really quantifiable, uh, yeah. for under, understandable reasons. But the problem is that makes it really hard to enforce, Versus something like the sites inventory, where like the, the law for sites inventory is basically like um, you are supposed to show if you're, if you're talking about a non-vacant site, that's something with like any kind of store or like business or, or apartment on it. You're supposed to show substantial evidence that the existing use will discontinue, right? Like that's what the law says. It's literally yeah. the text of law. So that's like really clear, you know, like the city needs to show substantial evidence that this use is going to discontinue. So like if, if you're saying a preschool is going to turn to housing, it's like. Show me evidence that like this this preschool is like listed on LoopNet, you know, or something like that, or like you, this. You create this, a betting this, market if you want to, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's an actual that's an sure, actual claim. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, like as a, yeah, as opposed to like segregation, like segregation will end. How do you how do you like adjudicate that in the end? Yeah. So like you know like developer sent a letter of interest. So like that's really clear guideline. Where fair housing is much more sort of um, vague, you know. And so similarly, the remedies like how are you judging whether this is an appropriate remedy for fair housing or not? Right. Um, and so a lot of it is sort of come down to the discretion of um, people at HCD and sort of what advocates are pushing for. Uh, I will say we've had better than anticipated results, honestly. Like I've been hmm. I've been grateful for how much HCD is willing to push back. 
But at the same time, it has been kind of frustrating, um, you know, and it has been a little bit inconsistent city to city in terms of um, what cities can do and, and what cities can't. Like Arinda, for example, like they made no changes to single family zones. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, right now it's legal to sell in Arenda like a $4 million uh, mansion that's 6,000 square feet. But if you wanted to build three 2,000 square foot triplexes, you could not do that. You know, and like that doesn't really make sense to me from from a fair housing perspective, um, you know, in terms of who can afford Arenda uh, and sort of increasing the amount of affordability and the number of people that have access to, to opportunity in Arenda. Um, and, you know, Walnut Creek, uh, we were pretty successful in getting like a, a program to reduce the minimum lot sizes in there, um, you know, and so so that's that's something that I, I hope HCD will look at and, and sort of and legislators will look at and sort of future future iterations of this process. Yeah, I'm thinking more about like just the quantification part because I feel like you know in some you can talk very broadly about kind of you know fair housing in the abstract and if quantifying it or ways to do it. I mean, you can talk about racial, you can quantify racial segregation, you know, to a large yeah. degree. I mean, you can definitely there there are there is data on on you know on 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 you know race populations in different areas and also ge- geographies. I suppose making it actionable. Like I worry if like you kind of tie it to outcomes, if that will kind of run afoul of like quota, you know, you know, race quotas are generally not looked upon well in the law. And if you yeah. say you can't be segregated white, I don't know if that's going to be, you know, kind of a, an, an issue. You know, there are ways to kind of look at, you know, things that correlate highly with that are just class, you know, s- you know stratification. You know, where are different people at different income levels living? Mm-hmm. And if you do it that way, you don't have the same race issues and it seems like it's a pretty good – if you're seeing a bunch of concentrated high-income people, you know, you're probably dealing with something that is, you know, either uh, downstream of past de facto segregation or just is working to be – or de jure segregation and is working to kind of be de facto segregation. On top of that, that, you know, I mean, to look at one thing and, you know, I always pointed the title of the show, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is exhibited in the form of land values. If you are putting your site inventory on low land values, like that's a bad sign. (laughs) Like in your city, there really should be something like a reasonable ratio of number of people yeah. dwelling on, you know, a certain value of land, you know, high land value should have higher, you know, higher numbers of people and vice versa. Yeah. And I, I don't think, I mean, again, it's, you know, harder to do this because we don't actually assess parcels in California as often as we should. But like, I think we probably could, you know, could look at that and kind of say like, yeah, it's give a score, you know, I mean, I'm just kind of looking yeah. at ways you can kind of, you know, give yeah. you know, objective grades. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we've proposed in Contra Costa County, for example, like a number of tests that we think are reasonable for sort of evaluating fair housing, you know, um, the mixed use densities in in the higher income areas, uh, are they equal to the mixed use densities in, in the lower income areas? Right. Or do you have like, for example, you know, if you're proposing 100 units an acre in Bay Point, you should be proposing 100 units an acre in Alamo. Yeah. Um, single family rezones. So what densities, basically like the way that this works is when Contra Costa County was first built, like all of Alamo and Danville was zoned for agricultural uh, with a minimum half acre lot size. Uh, and so then later that was turned into basically like what's called the R20 zone, which is like a minimum of 20,000 square foot lot size. Uh, and that zone just does not exist in lower income parts of the county at all. 
And so, I mean, that just that fact is just like massively unfair. So like you can you can propose whatever development standards you want for the R20 zone, but just its existence is, well, is unfair. Where are the gentleman it, farmers supposed to live in the low income places? Right. You it know? just does not exist in Crockett, right? There's no R20 yeah. zone in, in Crockett or Rodeo or North Richmond. And so, I mean, what we're saying is like, if you're sort of going to rezone these lower income areas for seven to 17 units per acre, which is a pretty common uh, single family rezoning that they're that they're doing now in um, in these lower income communities, you should also be identifying similar numbers in the higher income communities and rezoning those for seven to 17 units an acre. Um, I, I do wonder, this is kind of a question, uh, which is looking at different areas. I, mean, I can make examples in the peninsula, compare yeah. Palo Alto, Los Altos Hills. But I'm guessing if you compare like, you know, Rock Ridge to Alamo, I mean, I might be off base here, but Danville's kind of, I, I think, on the same target. Like, what is the difference between, well, like kind of city core transit connected areas and bedroom bedroom communities, which are kind of badly sited? Some places are rich, but also they're like distant and I yeah. suppose if you say, like, if you ask me, should Palo Alto be as dense as Los Altos Hills? I would say it should be denser. Los Altos Hills is, I mean, if you really ask me, I think it should be depopulated. Uh, it's like it's just, you know, rich jerks living in the hills on, like, giant parcels. Yeah. And, on, like, honestly, it's like if you build towers there, it's very hard to get people to the rest of the area as opposed to, it, like, literally old Palo Alto is blocks away from Caltrain, that should be where your towers are. I guess that's a question. Is Alamo a, like a, a kind of a badly attached, you know, uh, bedroom community or is, yeah. does it have connectivity? So it's it's a good question. I mean, it's it's funny, like how much history I've sort of like learned about this area uh, as, as a process of doing this, because you really need to understand the history to sort of like figure out why why things have happened and sort of where we're in, in, in the place that we're in. Most people so, only know it because Steph Curry lives there, right? Right, right. Well, he moved, yeah. he moved to Atherton when they moved to uh, San Francisco. Oh, um, yeah, because yeah, he was part of that whole letter thing, yes, too. Yeah. yeah. Wow, he, he hits, he hits all, all, all the great places. But, I mean, Alamo has, like, tens of, of black residents in a, in a community of, of 13,000. So, you know, um, he and Draymond Green deciding to move there, like, significantly increased the, the black population in Alamo, which is really uh, unfortunate. Um, so, I mean, the history of Alamo is that it had a railroad running through it, uh, which was owned by Southern Pacific Railroad uh, and, and was freight only uh, and ran from uh, Pleasant Hill all the way down to uh, Pleasanton um, and got bought by the East Bay Parks and Recreation District in 1980 and turned into the Iron Horse Trail. So, I mean, yeah. there's no reason why you couldn't have ran passenger rail there uh, and set up stations and done everything. Um, and it was also uh, initially targeted by BART, the Highway 680, uh, for heavy rail right down the middle of the the, the freeway there. Um, and then that was opposed by residents of Alamo, residents of Danville, residents of San Ramon, who said, we don't want our, our communities to change and, and we don't want new development that's going to come from, from having a, a BART station in our town. Uh, and so that's why those plans were shelved. So, I mean, there's kind of like a circular argument here, which is we can't have more density because uh we don't have good transportation networks but then also like we can't ever get good transportation networks because we don't have good density right if you look at like the density that you need to have like a decent bus connection it's it's higher than it is in alamo you know but like you could build apartments and then run a county connection bus and that would make the bus a lot more effective 
Yeah, I you guess know? there's like different levels because like Atherton, where he moved to, that's another case. That was on Caltrain. And they they ripped out the Caltrain station, right. you know, which right. is just abhorrent. Whereas Los Altos Hills and like Hillsboro, objectively, like they never had transit. They've always been just rich jerks. But I'm sure the Iron Horse Trail it was it was sold as rail banking, and I'm 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 sure they'll they'll take a withdrawal any day now and actually put rail back in. <laughs> right, sure. right. Well, yeah. I mean, so like Walnut Creek, for example, they took the entire right of way and turned it into um, South Broadway, uh, which is this like really kind of silly uh, one, almost two mile long road with no left or right exits that duplicates an existing road on South Main. Um, I mean, but the the parcel is probably like 50 acres. You know, you could have imagined like a big, big park space, open space. Yeah. Um, you know, tennis courts, any number of sports fields that you wanted. Uh, instead, they thought, you know, well, the best way to use this, this former train track right away would be put in a, a new road and some sound walls. Yeah, I mean, that is, I mean, I'll say I, I do, I do, I'm always of two minds with bike trails out of old railroads because in theory, you could... You could bring them back, make them dual use or something. But yeah. then I think the biggest issue is, okay, you have to, like, in almost all cases, you're going to have to widen it, at least in some areas. And just getting that acquisition of the right-of-way is, like, disastrously expensive. And, yeah. like, yeah. I don't know. I, I think it shouldn't be because – I don't know if <laughs> this is kind of an abstract issue about, like, you know, in my dream world, a land value tax. I think that you would say the kind of along that corridor, like that, you should tax it higher in someone's backyard that abuts it, like yeah. in the back end of your parking lot. They should, you should actually kind of like, are you sure you want that back end of your of your backyard? You know, don't you want, <laughs> wouldn't you rather give it back to the city? I, I don't yeah. know, but. Well, too, you know, even having a bike trail existing, um, they could be doing a lot more to to facilitate sort of access. I mean, like a lot of the properties, I, the Walnut Creek is a pretty good trail network, not just the the Iron Horse Trail, but also they have canals running through it. And each of the canals has a, has a trail running next to it. But I mean, the properties along the canals, they don't have a right of way that opens onto the trail, <laughs> the bike trail. Like oh, no. all the all the entrance and exit from your property is, is to the to the road. Um, you know, and so that's the thing that you could address with a code. You could say, you know, if you're building a new house and you have, and you have bike access, you know, like a concrete ramp and a and a gate leading down to the trail, so that like we can sort of facilitate using these these networks that we have. But uh, that doesn't exist, unfortunately, right that's now. That's another thing I feel like another dream world thing. B- better public acquisition would allow cities to have like. Let's create a cut through in all these yeah. areas. Right right yeah, now, yeah. if you have bad cul-de-sacs and things that aren't well connected, it's they are never remedied well. And I don't right. know, like maybe right. like I guess in theory that could be part of kind of a, a larger city transportation planning, and maybe it will be a, you know out of self-interest eventually. But right now, it's it could be pretty dismal in a lot of places. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But that's a that's kind of a side thing. But like, I guess I mean, so your your general take is even places, even a lot of places that seem to be not well connected, it might be worth it to really put their you know feet to the fire and you know say no, sorry. And also, we want to we want to have you remedy the transportation networks you should have had or not or not yeah. uh, disinvested in. So uh, yes, yes, broadly yes. Um, and I think the other thing is that I mean, all of our our sort of wealthier areas are in a lot better position to deal with all of these problems than you know uh, our lower income areas who don't have the resources. Um, so just as an example, the other thing is that a lot of times they're not even trying. So like 
a lot of the complaints, Alamo, so so Contra Costa County submitted a draft housing element. Um, and so this is an example of kind of like when I talk about, you know, we, we've asked the county to, to analyze um, just all of the inequalities that exist. I mean, here's one is like when, when the county submits a new housing element, there's a group called the Alamo Improvement Association. And so they mail every single uh, Alamo resident with every single site in Alamo that's that's on the housing element. And they say, you know, here's where to send your comments. Send them to, to Candace Anderson, the county supervisor. Um, you know, and they don't say yes or no, but it's like pretty clear, pretty clear which way they, they want you to, 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 to go. And so as a result of the comments that were submitted on the housing element, uh, there were maybe 80 comments and 65 of them were from Alamo residents, you know, and Alamo's maybe, uh, maybe 10, 15% of the total unincorporated population of the county. And they're submitting like tons and tons and tons of the comments on the housing element. What, what are um, the dynamics? Cause I know most places, I mean, this is kind of goes a lot of yeah. places you find and you say, well, if you, if you don't get an order, we're going to disincorporate you. And Alamo yeah, yeah. is is unincorporated, is unincorporated but, they, yeah. but they seem to be thriving in their own sense within the unincorporated county is like, I guess that's also a big question of like, yeah, what do cities gain and lose my incorporation? And, you know, what is the like, yeah, like there's just they're apparently still calling the shots, I guess, even though. So, they're... yeah, I think I think the tides kind of turned a little bit now that each city has kind of like now that. Um, I think the arena mechanisms are taking into account sort of uh, how wealthy you are um, and how sort of jobs rich your communities are and sort of access to, to transit. I mean, even a place like Danville, when you compare it to somewhere like uh, Brentwood, you know, it's so much closer to BART and so much closer to San Francisco yeah. um, that it sort of scores higher, uh, even though if it's, you know, 10, 15 minutes down the freeway. But yeah, uh, I think, you know, you see this just basically anytime anyone submits an application for new housing in any of these racially concentrated areas of affluence, uh, I see this over and over again. It's, it's unincorporated Walnut Creek, Alamo. I was looking at one in Discovery Bay today. Uh, there's just tons of community opposition. Like the people know how to organize to fight these these projects. And it doesn't even matter what's being proposed. Um, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're well, talking what kind about, of people live in Discovery Bay, but like, it's just a, like, it's a, it's, it's a weird it's an canal city. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting community. I mean, cause it's uh, way, way, way out yeah, there. It's like, it's, it's uh, past Antioch, but like it, it's like, I've never, I've wanted to be, I've wanted to visit it for a while, but what, what is it like? It's, uh, I mean, I've, I've honestly, I've never been, but the oh, demographics, wow. you know, it's significantly wider and significant. The median incomes higher than the surrounding communities. Are there people um, working in, like the fire industry or like it was like is it similar people that like work and live in Walnut Creek or like I don't understand I don't why you like, yeah. it was like it's like Walnut Creek is that's that's too hustling and bustling for me I need to be out in you know Discovery this Bay freakish, yeah yeah Discovery Bay you know I think the wealthy communities back to my point of like the wealthy communities I think are, have more resources to solve these problems so Alamo like a lot of the complaints when you go and like read through all these letters yeah are you know school pickup traffic is bad. Uh, specifically around like Rancho Romero Elementary, which is right on like the main kind of thoroughfare through town, which in Alamo is called Danville Boulevard. And then it changes names uh, as you go to different towns. Um, and then you go and look at it and you look at like how people are getting to school. And it's 80, probably I'd say 80 to 95% is like individual parents dropping off their kids in a car. 
Yeah, the, you know? people, I mean, that's the thing people point to. They do, like, overhead photos. This is a new thing where people, like, have a weird caravan of single family. Like, it's a drive-through dropping off your kids. And, right. like, that didn't exist decades ago. It's weird. So, yeah. So, I mean, no wonder you're upset about traffic is because you have this incredibly walkable, bikeable location. It steps yeah. from the Iron Horse Trail. Uh, and, you know, 80 to 95% of parents are doing pickups every day in a car, which means that the traffic is going on to, you know, adjacent side streets and it's going on to the main thoroughfare. And it's like every day at three o'clock and eight o'clock in the morning is is kind of a disaster. And then you say, you know, well, what are you actually doing to mitigate this? And the answer is nothing. Like yeah. the, the county is doing nothing. They say it's the school district's fault. The school district is doing nothing. They say that everything outside of the school per- facility is uh, the county's fault. And I mean, if you look at, for example, it's funny to mention Palo Alto, but if you look at Palo Alto, like they have an amazing program for this. And they've been focusing for decades now on safe routes to school and investing in making sure that it's safe for every kid to get to school. And as a result, the mode share for private auto in Palo Alto is under 50%. So that means that more than 50% of all kids uh, at every single level at elementary school are walking or biking or taking the bus or carpooling to get to school. I will say, like that's it's 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 good, but also bleak to mention that because Palo Alto is still so car brained that like they're talking about one of you know because they need to re redo all the Caltrain crossings. This is really off topic, but I just want to very briefly. Uh, Churchill is you know cuts through Caltrain, so it's either they have to just cut it off. They can make it bike only, pedestrian only. They could just b- cut it entirely. Uh, or they could build a very expensive car tunnel. And people yeah. are saying, oh, we need the car tunnel because if we don't have this, everyone's going to have to drive so much further to drop their kids off of school. And like, it's like, it's pol- like you actually have everyone should be able to walk to school in Palo Alto. Like, that's absurd. Yeah. But people are still car brained. Uh, we're yeah, getting, you know, getting late in the episode, but let's, uh, I think, you know, I, I just kind of want to talk about what everyone wants to talk about. Uh, the sexiest part of all is Builder's Remedy. Yeah. Uh, I guess Builder's Remedy is when you miss your deadlines. Question one, are all the deadlines closed in Northern California? I can't really keep track of, you know, like where everyone is. And also, what is a deadline versus what is an extension versus like, what is the status of, of everywhere you've been seeing? I guess you can talk about your, your places, but uh, are most of them either failed or flunked at this point or, you know, passed or flunked? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, about, I think about half of the jurisdictions are in compliance and half of them are not. Um, And so, I mean, it's not just, if you're not in compliance, it's not just builder's remedy. Um, There's also a number of grants that are tied to sort of housing element compliance. Um, And those are grants for affordable housing and grants for transportation. So for example, MTC, which is kind of the the Bay Area overwhelming transportation authority had, had some grant money to give out. Walnut Creek applied for and got $7 million worth of grants from MTC that relied on the city having a compliant housing element by December 31. Uh, and so they got that. But, you know, I was kind of pressing people starting in January of this year and saying, you know, we need to t- be trying harder to hit this deadline. Uh, I live in Walnut Creek, which is why I'm saying yeah. we. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think we're on pace to hit this right now. Uh, and finally, after a lot of teeth pulling, we kind of got something that was successful. But, yeah, Um Withholding funds for affordable housing seems like really unlikely to uh, to to upset the people who are segregationists living in rich neighborhoods. Right. Uh, but yeah, but yeah. Tra- transportation funds, I could see how that does that actually motivate people in your experience? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, to, to an extent, um, I think uh, to an extent, I think the builder's remedy is sort of the bigger penalty. I think 
Uh, it certainly seems to be scaring yeah. people. It scares the worst people in ways that I appreciate as opposed to the other stuff. So we've seen some uh, people are kind of quiet about their builders remedy stuff. And you see a lot of things where people are submitting basically like a one page sheet of paper that says, here's my proposed builders remedy project. And then once you submit that, you have basically six months to submit an actual application. And so people are submitting a thing that says, here's my, you know, I'm just doing this to like vest my developers rights, which is like, even if you get into compliance, I still have this valid application from when you're out of compliance. Um, and then you have six months from that date to to actually go forward and you know pay all the fees and and submit actual renderings and plans and everything else that you need to do to get a permit. Yes, so that's a that's a question I have. Okay, so okay, just I mean, uh, let's go back and just very quickly, thirty seconds. Builders remedy, go. You know, just explain yeah. What it is. So the builders remedy is if you don't have a compliant housing element, the law says anyone can submit uh, an application of any density on any residential parcel in your city as long as 20% of the units are affordable to people making lower incomes, um, you can build whatever you want. Um, and so in theory, you know, this should pave the way for kind of like towers and places where there's high demand that's being constrained by the zoning. Um, in practice, uh, developers are kind of herd animals and a, a lot of them are kind of don't want to, don't want to, are scared of retribution. Um, and are scared of political blowback or, or mm. they live in a community and they, and they don't want sort of blowback or they think that staff has significant power to sort of hurt their other applications um, or slow down their other applications um, through sort of exercising their own discretion. Uh, and so they're, they're kind of kind of been reluctant to, to use this in a lot of ways. People have always said it. Developers are, are too pro-social. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not antagonistic enough. Yeah. The other thing I would the other thing I would say is the the legal uh, there there are some unanswered sort of legal questions around this, and so unless you have the stomach for you know a, a protracted legal battle, uh, especially on a project by project basis, where if you're looking at you know so almost certainly going to the California Appeals Court, maybe to the Supreme Court, uh, that's several years being added onto your timeline. So unless you're proposing something that's like immensely you know profitable and and the profits can help fund your your legal battle. Something like this seventeen-story building in Palo Alto. You know, a lot of a lot of developers aren't necessarily looking to 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 have that fight. Yeah, I'd like to. I mean, it'd be interesting to take odds. Like, what are what is everyone's percentage they think of this stuff is going to get built? You know, because it's you have to kind of multiply your profit margin by that odds that it's going to be struck down somewhere. I don't know, twenty-five percent, forty, sixty. I don't know, but. I, uh, I think the best strategy is is kind of a political one. So you submit one project, which is this project complies with the zoning, and it may make the res the neighbors unhappy, but uh, I'd like to build it, and the zoning says that I should be able to build it. And then you submit a second builder's remedy project for like twice or three times the density. Yeah. And you say if you monkey around with with my application too much or or make me do you know years and years of neighborhood meetings, then I'm just going to do the builder's remedy project instead. That's what they did um, with the uh, with the mall Valco down in uh, Cupertino. They basically had their real thing, and then they had their kind of work taking the SB thirty five short circuit, and that yeah. helped them get back. Oh, well, let's go back to the negotiating table and do it the right way. And yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. Uh, but yeah, I think as you're saying, there's hurdles to doing it. One is it has not been tested, so it was like there's large scale statewide challenges in court. And these are moving along. I think I just saw there's news today that it seems to be looking pretty good that like it'll be upheld. Like this is, you know, 
broadly valid, but there are site-specific lawsuits. You know, CEQA, the Environmental You know Quality Act, allows environmental impact reports. And if if you're not part of an existing impact report for like a kind of existing zoning, you might you're open to lawsuits there, and it can cost a lot of money and a lot of headaches to to you know be compliant with that. So I guess there's two different avenues for lawsuits alone. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose the third thing, this is actually something you wrote in your Cron article, is that you can still impose higher, like, essentially impact fees, like, I guess, like, for sewer infrastructure and stuff, too. And I guess, like, it kind of surprises me, because it feels like, how how do people not, like, exploit that and just impose, like, arbitrary impact fees to kind of stop it? I guess, is, is there, like, does this have to be compliant with actually some sort of standard for infrastructure impact fees for sewers etc or like yeah uh, it it seems like that's actually kind of dangerous i think unfortunately i mean there's there's kind of two different angles looking at this so one is like unfortunately the way the state law kind of works is like someone proposes doing something bad uh like you know in berkeley saying that students are pollution yeah and then a state law comes up to like prevent cities from doing the bad thing uh and you saw this again and again with adus um, but kind of there aren't enough sort of builder's remedy cases or or sort of established kind of law to to fix fix the bad thing. Um, on the flip side, though, you know, because this is so rare, like, you know, you can't you can't impose a fee after after an application has been submitted. Yeah. So and because like Atherton, for example, doesn't have like a multifamily zone, they might not have thought to like write down here are our impact fees for multifamily apartments <laughs> because multifamily apartments That's are illegal it. in our town. Oh yeah, so so it's more it's it it if you have stuff on the books, you can throw it at them, but it'll be very suspicious and difficult to get away with if you have a new impact fee or right. something. Right, it's, it's not legal to do that after you submit an application, right? It's like it's kind of like the double jeopardy thing or whatever, right? Where like you can't invent a crime. <laughs> that's for someone okay, to be accused of after after the fact you know i was wondering that it has that effect like with existing uh like laws too for example like let's look like sb330 if like no net loss like it seems like well that's essentially an impact fee for you know working off a parcel or like you know you you can't you know just it, it's not it's not an open slate you ha- there are certain regulations but those are already on the books that's mm-hmm. interesting okay cool it does make me wonder because I always think about like new forms like no net loss or something for like, you know, for example, like no net loss for different cultural institutions or something. Like, that'd yeah. be interesting. But it is interesting. I guess if you're doing that, you can't retroactively protect stuff. You know, it's yeah. you, have to, you have to get ahead of the curve. Yeah. Although, I mean, historical preservation, its own can of worms where like, you know, a lot of times suddenly people become interested in uh, a parcel's historic qualities only because someone has proposed doing something actually like interesting with it. Yeah, um, no, I think it can it can be a very of, ad hoc. Uh, if you want to oppose housing, I am right. on the books. I, I I support I support preservation for protecting cinemas. I think we know net loss for cinema screens, but that's my own kind of you know very personal uh, hatchet. But uh, now I I do agree that it's it's you know making it kind of general and not uh, abused is is pretty hard. But uh, no, there's, I mean, as, as we're mentioning, there's a couple Builder's Remedy things on the books being looked at. I think it'd be interesting to look more about some of these things as they're going down the pipe. But yeah, what, what, what are you looking out for? Like, are you, uh, like, are stuff going on in East Bay? Because I've seen the ones in the peninsula. Like, are, are the places in East Bay rich enough uh, to justify any of these things? Um, I mean, I think it depends right now on sort of the, the individual property owners and their sort of willingness to kind of stomach this, right? So, I mean... 
you might own, if you bought some property in 1990 and your property taxes were low and, and you're living on it, for example, uh, maybe you can fund a court case indefinitely. Uh, I think I saw one in uh, Pacifica that sort of fit those those parameters um, where <laughs> someone proposed building, you know, like 40 townhomes or something and and probably they can fund a suit and they can kind of wait out the city and and get more clarity on the court cases and and kind of go forward with that application. Um, but yeah, I, I think that another thing is like the more that people are sort of writing about the builder's remedy, the more you might see people uh, take an interest in sort of submitting applications that 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 fit this. Um, yeah, it's too it's too bad lawsuits cost so much these days. We used to have a society where people would just like put up like nuisance houses and all this. It's like yeah. wow, that was that was cool. When I mean, just just personal grievances can <laughs> can, can yeah. do so much to make stuff happen. There are there are basically legal legal nonprofits, both legal nonprofits and the attorney general are sort of interested in establishing case law here. So I mean, we're taping this on Wednesday the thirteenth. Um, just yesterday, it was announced that the attorney general is intervening in uh, La Cunada, Flint Ridge, where there's yeah, that's a developer what I was referring who's... to before about like yeah. you know, good news. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so I mean, there is sort of there is sort of legal assistance available, but yeah, it just takes a long time. And you know, if interest rates are nine percent, and you so you have a loan on a three million dollar property, uh, you know, that's that's going to add a s- substantial amount to your to your cost. Uh, you're looking at almost three hundred thousand dollars a year just in just in borrowing costs, you know, to sort of yeah. keep that loan going. That so, is a wild thing. It's like, boy, if we had builders' remedy plus a zero interest rate, you know, environment, that would have been an interesting, interesting combination. But it's yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. We're still seeing stuff, you know, and the constraints we have here. But uh, well, I think we're over an hour. Anything else uh, you want to kind of wrap up with here? Yeah. So I mean, the thing I think is really interesting about housing elements is like. You know, I lived in San Francisco for a long time, but I was still participating in the East Bay because you can be like one of 200 people who's like standing in a queue at the at the San Francisco City Hall to comment on like whatever the housing policy is in San Francisco because it gets so much attention, you know, or calling Nancy Pelosi to ask for like X, Y or Z thing. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at housing elements, like a lot of times we're the only people submitting comments on a housing element. Yeah. Uh, and so you can kind of be like the expert if you just take like an hour reading through a document, like you probably know more about the document than, than any, anyone except like five people on the planet, you know, and you can kind of really shape things in a positive way by, by taking that time and, and submitting a comment, even if you don't think you're an expert, like I'm not an expert. I just like read stuff and I say, does this make sense? And if it doesn't, then I ask questions or I, I submit a comment about it, you know? Um, and, and we've had a lot of success in sort of uh, shaping things and, and moving things in a positive direction, um, so yeah, so I, I, it is a really steep barrier to, to, to getting started. We're obviously always happy to sort of help have new volunteers and onboard new volunteers for, for doing this kind of work. Um, but I would encourage you to get involved because I think this is a really powerful sort of lever for, for making change in your community. Um, and, and if you do have questions, please, please reach out. I'm happy to talk with anyone about this stuff. Um, it's pretty nerdy, but, but I like it cause I think it's, it's really successful at sort of helping get housing built. One well, final, final question, uh, you know, relating to that, you know, I mentioned earlier, speaking of Palo Alto, I mostly taught them because they're so distinctly hostile that honestly, I kind of just want them to screw up and get punished because I think that's more of a chance of them doing the right thing. But I guess that's a question, bend or break? You know, how often do you think you can actually bend people, do the right thing and kind of get better outcomes through actual reforms? And how many 
places, if any, in your opinion, do you think, oh, they're past, you know, working with, they just need to be punished or, you know, broken oh. up or, you know, <laughs> put Man, to the it's a good question. It's a good question. Because, I mean, even a lot of these jurisdictions that I've thought, you know, I just kept saying, what are they doing? Because they kept just submitting the same thing over and over again. Yeah. It was incomprehensible. And, and a lot of them ended up submitting really good programs. Um, so okay. I, I do think kind of the, yeah, the lever of uh, the builder's remedy and kind of state state certification is is pretty substantial in all of these places. I mean, San Francisco, for example, you're seeing like stuff that was just not thinkable, you know, and I, I, there are reasons to be disappointed, but, you know, it's been so successful. And all of the reason that like this constraints reduction stuff is happening is because of the threat of losing affordable housing funding um, yeah. and, 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 and advocates working. SF is a good case insofar as there's such a bad politics and practice, they should not be this bad. They're, they're stagnant and they're stuck in ruts, but they can be reformed as opposed to like Atherton or Hillsboro or Palo Alto. Like, I think they're honestly just an HOA for the worst people in the world. And I don't, they're never going to be better than that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And that's in theory, you know, if you strengthen the builder's remedy and then uh, half a decade from now will be uh people will be significantly more scared and um a lot more incentivized to to try to hit their hit their uh hit their numbers or you know people will be ready on the day to submit the applications you know i think this is the first year that kind of people have been aware of of the builder's remedy and that exists and it's been kind of slow to to sort of percolate through the community but i think certainly certainly in in 8 years people are going to be ready on the spot to, yeah, no, I, I think this cycle is crazy. Next cycle oh. is going to be nuts. But yeah, uh, yeah uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for the, the deep dive. And if people want to find you or find more about East Bay for everyone, uh, you know, what, 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 where should they go? Oh man, uh, we're on we're online at eastbayforeveryone.org. dot um, and I have I have a website at kevin Although I don't post as much as I used to, and and I used to be on. I have a Twitter account, but I don't I don't post there anymore. Uh, I guess you can find me on, on Blue Sky or, or Threads. Yeah, I'd search for East Bay for everyone and, and go from there. Cool, cool. Thanks for having the time. It's uh, been, uh, been fun. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Mark. This is a lot of fun. Cool. We have been talking to Kevin Burke all about housing elements and much more. And as you heard at the end, we uh, did record this in uh, mid-December. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this radio show at the website seatthecat.org. This is a presentation of Kezia Shu, Stanford 2023.